everybody. This is Caleb Barrows. Thanks again for taking the time to check out our King's Cross Membership Class podcast. And just want to give you again a brief overview of the process for becoming a member. First, we're just asking that you listen to all four of these classes in order to take in this content and learn a little bit more about what it means to be a member of King's Cross Church. And secondly, we'll ask you to fill out an application. And then once you turn that into Paul or I, uh, we'll, we'll set up a meeting to have a conversation with you, a little membership interview to hear about your journey into knowing Jesus and your life with him. And then after that, we'll inform you when we're going to have uh, our first member meeting sometime later this spring, early summer, when we will come together and confirm one another as members of King's Cross. So again, that's kind of a brief overview of the pro- process for becoming a member and wanted to say thank you again uh, for taking the time to listen to these classes. Uh, This is the third class where we will be addressing what is expected for a member of King's Cross. So thanks again for checking it out. Again, session three, what will be expected for a member? If you have that guide right in front of you, I encourage you to open that up. We have some questions there for you. I wanted us to ask this first discussion question. What are some good and rightful expectations that the church, meaning us, one another, that we should have towards one another. So again, not, I know expectations sometimes has a negative connotation, but I'm, I'm thinking of that in a good way. What are the good and right expectations that we should have towards one another in the church? And you might throw out things we get into later, but we'd just love to hear your thoughts. I think we're gonna Yeah, yeah. I think especially if you are giving, and you know most of the rest of the church is not giving. I think that is a hard. Like we're we all should be carrying this together, not in a burden, but this opportunity to give and worship. We should all be doing that together. I think that is a good and right expectation, and we will get into that here in a little bit. Other thoughts? Service. Yep, service. Actually caring for one another, serving one another in practical ways. Yes, that is huge. I love that because you're right. Sometimes, like, well, if they're not asking, I don't know if they're going to get that help. But even being aware, if they don't even put that offer on the table. I still want to know the needs of those around me so that we can try to meet those because they might feel awkward sharing that or selfish, but that's what love looks like towards one another. And we'll see if we can get all the things we're going to talk about tonight. Maybe out in one. We'll, we'll see if we can get all of it. Other thoughts, Travis? That's similar to that, but outreach. Yeah, yep. Community. Um, and then the other thing I was thinking about, it's true. Outreach, not just here in Rice County but beyond ourselves, and we really do need to find ways that we are uh, doing ministry overseas and missions. That's huge. And, and one another supporting that, right? Yes, it's the <coughs> church being involved in that. That's great. Any other thoughts? Yes, Teresa. With liberty to non-believers mm-hmm. and believers alike. Yes. 
I love that because I think sometimes it's an expectation for pastors only to be doing that, right? Because they know we, we are the body of Jesus. This is our responsibility together to share this good news that's life changing to us. It should naturally flow out of us. Absolutely. Maybe one more thing. We were right on track. Praying for one another and yes. our community. Yes. Absolutely. For, to add, that's a right good expectation. That's like, I'm not alone in praying, but the rest of this gathering of people that I'm a part of, this church body, this family, we're praying for one another in our community. I don't have that in here, but maybe we should write that because that's absolutely necessary for us. Maybe one more thought. I think the baseline, I hope it comes out well enough, is just to twist this word expectation and to see that, yes, maybe we can look at that in a negative way, but actually it's really needed because sometimes we, we should have things we're saying to belong to this body should have certain things that we expect from one another, certain behaviors, certain commitments and things that we are doing. So we just want to walk through that. And again, this is not just Paul and I and Ashley for the church. This is expectations that we have towards one another, right? Shared as a family that we take on these responsibilities and these joys together. So in that, I'm going to let Paul start out with our first one here. Hand it off to him. Yeah, it's great to be great to be back. I'm a little bit of a stranger. Uh, I uh, was Caleb said we're covering theology, and I said, well, I'm going to Dallas. That's, that's the order. He said, we're going to do the statement of faith. And I said, I'm out of here. You're on your own with these crazy people. Um, so now I uh, yeah, had a conference last weekend that I went to on behalf of the college uh, in, in Dallas. And uh, so I was on, on the road last week when you guys were uh, working through, journeying through the questions that were covered last week. So Caleb said and Ashley said it went great. And the engagement from you all was really wonderful uh, during that time. And uh, then I also missed Sunday morning because of that conference. And the week before that, I was uh, doing pulpit supply at a church in Kansas City. So you just thought I fell off the face of the planet. But I still I still love you. Hopefully you love me. Actually, that's number one. I love, love one another. <laughs> it's actually belong. Don't write love. It's belong. Sorry. The answer is belong. Belong to one another is your first fill in the blank. And we maybe could have put love one another, but even in, right, flow with me from, through our mission statement at King's Cross, we exist to lead people into the fullness of life that is found only in Jesus, which is a subtle reference to John 10.10 and begs an immediate question, what does the full life look like? One that is led into this full life, what characteristics do they exhibit? And so our three key words that we talk about often at King's Cross is enjoy God, the second is belong to one another, and renew all things, participate in the renewal of all things. So we have, from our very beginning, this is in King's Cross Ministry Blueprint, have chosen, we think the word belong uh, really gets at the heart of this, what the New Testament means by love one another. Uh, because we have a problem a little bit with the word love. It's a little bit of a junk drawer word. Do you know what I mean by that? Like everybody's got a junk drawer where you open it up and just stuff a bunch of things in there. And so uh, we wanted actually something not, not stronger than love necessarily, but what, what does the New Testament mean when it gives us the command of Christ to love one another? Well, we think there's an encapsulation of that with this idea of, of belong. And actually, belonging to one another is an, it's a kind of an 
uh, an invasive invitation, right? Like we're, we're going to get into each other's lives in a really deep and meaningful way. Um, and, and it doesn't just sum up and encapsulate love one another, but there's 41 one another commands in the New Testament. And we think about this idea of belonging and community to one another is a pretty good summary of all of them. So, but this is still, right, it's about love. So it's, it's not wholly wrong to have that as uh, kind of this idea here. In fact, when we unpack what we mean by belong to one another, the first kind of sub-point there is we're inviting you and saying, hey, we're journeying together in demonstrating Jesus-type love. So John 15, this is Jesus with his closest friends and followers. Um, this is the upper discourse in John's Gospel, so it's very close to the end of Jesus' life. These are his final teachings to his most really his most trusted followers and friends, and, and here's uh, where he lays a heavy point of emphasis. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. And think about the significance of him saying that so close to when he would do that. He knows. Greater love has no one than this. To lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. That line is why I will refer to uh, obedience as Jesus' love language. I stole that phrase from a pastor friend. Obedience to Jesus' commands is his love language. And so we're talking about the five love languages, which I think is good and right. But Jesus' love language is obedience to his commands. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants, because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I have learned from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. And this is my command, love each other. So Jesus is saying, I am not hiding anything back. I've told you everything that the Father has told me. And really all of it can be summed up in the command to love one another. To love one another. It is actually a marvel that Jesus says we are to love one another as he has loved us. It's not even, there's other places in Jesus' teaching, right? When he, and even in the sort of Old Testament Levitical law, where there's this sense of, right, love your neighbor how? As you have loved yourself. We're really good at loving ourselves. But that doesn't even meet the bar for Jesus here. He actually raises it above that. Track with me on this. Because Jesus is better at loving you than you are loving you. Than you are at loving you. And spoiler all of you and me, like we're really good at loving ourselves. And again, that is part of the basis within the scriptural thrust. Like the Bible from beginning to end has this sense of, man, if we were just to love other people as we love ourselves, the world would be a pretty great place. Jesus raises the bar beyond that and says, actually, that's not quite enough because I'm better at loving you all than you are at loving yourselves. So he's really raising the bar here. But then what does he do? He goes out right after this and he proves that by dying for literally the entire world. Um, so he, he backs it up. Uh, so if we look at how Jesus has loved us, it gives us incredibly tangible, this is what we can't forget about Jesus. Um, right, John 14, 6, right before this, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Way, Jesus as the way does mean access to the Father. He is how we access the Father. But it's not just that. When we think of Jesus as the way, we also ought to think about him as a path 
that we can walk on for how to live this full life. So it is access to the Father, but it's more than that. So the Jesus way of love, demonstrate Jesus type love, is you can't get any higher than it. You can't get any higher than it. And by tracing his life, we see directives and examples of how to do that really well, including, uh, uh, and and we'll get down to this, including even up to, um, we may never be called to this, but laying down uh, one another's life, or laying down your life for for someone else. So uh, so belong to one another, um, this sense of demonstrating Jesus-type love. To do that, you have to be present. Right? So... um, the incarnation is so, so beautifully and mysteriously and confoundingly, because you know, it's like, what type of plan is that? But it's incredible. It's stunning. It's upside down. But the incarnation of, of God sending Jesus, um, uh, John 1, 14, um, in the message is, uh, God put skin on and moved into the neighborhood. Yeah, isn't that right? Um, this is almost an amen right there. Uh, it's just—it's really good. That's a great paraphrase of that verse because it—it really confronts you with the audacity of what God chose to do in the incarnation. Uh, God put skin on and moved into the neighborhood, um, and so there is a to, to really demonstrate Jesus type love. We have to show up and be present. Uh, this has been a problem. Sometimes uh, you'll, you'll read about sort of declining church attendance, and it is in our kind of increasingly post-Christian culture, which is not all bad. We don't have time for that, but it's not all bad. Okay, but in our increasingly post-Christian culture, there is declining church attendance. But in the letter to the Hebrews, so we're talking first century, we don't exactly know who the author is, Hebrews 10.25 is, do not give up, as some are in the habit of doing, do not give up the habit of meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing. We're not even a hundred years, we're probably, honestly, probably not even 50 years beyond Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension, and people are like, nah, I'm good on the church thing. <laughs> this has been a problem since the very beginning, and what, is, what should be convicting to us about what the author of the Hebrews says is, do not give up the habit, as some are in the habit of doing this, you don't do it though, don't give up the habit of meeting together, in fact, do it all the more as the day is approaching. A day, if you look at that, is going to be capitalized because it's Jesus' second return. Okay, so that was like 2,000 years ago. So every, every literal 24-hour day, we're a whole lot closer to the day when that letter was written. So we should just be doing church all the time, folks, right? But it only, like the actual, the author is, is grounding present church engagement and attendance in this sense of like, we need to do it more and more as Jesus' second return is coming. So it's been a problem since the very beginning, and there's been uh, sort of a move to say, hey, let's, let's engage with this and, and press into this and make sure that we, as we sort of gather together and say, remember, let's hold one another accountable to being present. Now, I mean, am I, am I no longer a, good, a member in good standing because I missed the last two Sundays at King's Cross? No. Like, there is grace. Of course there's grace. And we're not tracking this stuff. You know, it's not, right? It's, but we should encourage one another. Um, that's even what that author, the author of Hebrews says there. Is spur one another on to these good works, to loving good works, and don't give up the habit of meeting together. 
Um, so there should be an encouragement and a spurring and an expectation in a healthy, good way for presence with one another. And that, not just in formal church activities, uh, but even outside of that, in more organic and just relational channels, do not give up the habit of meeting with one another. So we have to be present if we're going to demonstrate Jesus-type love. Demonstrating Jesus-type love and belonging to one another also means that we're going to have to sacrifice. So you might not be called to uh, give up your life for your friends as Jesus was. Um, maybe. I don't, I mean, we, I'm, who am I to restrict what God might call any one of us to do? Um, but how far, like, man, we really love our comforts. I really love my comfort. And there is some level of incompatibility between comfort and genuine sacrifice. Genuine sacrifice costs you something. And we just see that so often in the life of Jesus. Um, so would you let someone who is struggling to find a home stay with you for a week or a month? Would you not just lend someone a car, but give someone a car? Should we, are we, how well are we doing at delivering food to one another? The centrality of, of food and breaking bread, that's why we're doing dinner at membership class, because of how central food is to God's story as a major, it's just a, yeah, they, they gathered often and broke bread with one another. Are we doing that? Are we uh, sacrificing in ways to do that, um, that, that's, that that's meaningful and that helps us to actually belong? We already talked about this, right? Knowing the needs of the body. Do we know the needs of the body? and Do we sacrifice our own comfort and wants to meet the needs of the body? Um, I think Galatians 6.2 is just deeply important and fits well into um, this idea of belonging to one another. It's bear one another's burdens, which is such a great image. Have you ever thought about, right, when you have too heavy a load to, to bear, you're carrying too much stuff? What is better in that moment than someone coming alongside and saying, can I help you? Right? We've all had that literal experience in our lives of carrying too much. We, we, we think we're stronger than we are, and we pick it up, and we're struggling under the weight of it. But how much more powerful, that, that's great in a literal moment, how much more powerful is the metaphor of that? When we're bearing too much in our souls, and in our hearts, and in our inner beings, and someone comes alongside and says, hey, can I, can I grab a little piece of that and help you out? Uh, bear one of those burdens, and in doing so, note the connection with me, you will fulfill the law of Christ. What's the law of Christ? Love one another. So you see the threads of this, right? Jesus says, I give you one law. Love one another. That sums it all up. Okay? And then Paul says, bear one of those burdens, and in doing so, you'll fulfill the law of Christ. So there's an interwoven connectedness between all of these concepts. But to really bear someone else's burdens, you're, you're sacrificing to do that. You're taking on someone else's weight. And we all already have our own weight that we're bearing. But there's a, right, there's this, and it's as far back as Ecclesiastes, a cord of three strands is not easily broken. Right? There is an there is a interconnectedness between God's word. Do you see this? And this idea that, man, we, can't, we cannot do it alone. You can't do it alone. I can't do it alone. But together we can. What is it? I don't know. It's coming. At the conference, um, Walter Kim 
Asian American president of the National Association of Evangelicals. He said, I don't like to uh, make prophecies, but I'm going to make a prophecy. Uh, you and everyone you know either either just came out of a hard time, is currently navigating a hard time, or is about to enter into a hard time. <laughs> that's, pretty, that's pretty good, right? And there's a, that, and it, it's we can't do that alone, but collectively we've got a shot. Okay, so we have to sacrifice for that. Uh, guard our unity is the last bit of belonging together. I would also say um, you could you could write next to that fight for our unity, um, commit to unity. You know, I was really trying to think about this, um, and this is all in that 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 upper room discourse in John. So it's just two chapters after the John 15 passage. There's this stunning phrase where Jesus says that the world will know that he is who he said he was, the Son of God, God God in the flesh, by the fact that we as his followers stay unified. We don't quite get a passing grade on that throughout the course of time, right? Uh, But that doesn't mean we should stop fighting for that. And actually, this is something that that, um, Protestants typically don't don't do that well. It's because we we were rightly I'm, I'm a Protestant pastor, right? We were rightly protesting, but then that's that's baked pretty deep into our cake. We were protesting, and we haven't stopped protesting, and we protested ourselves all the way to a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of different denominations. I sat with a group of our international students, many of whom at Sterling College, many of whom you know, are coming from just very different backgrounds. And, and one of the conversations we were having in this class that I got invited into, they were just confounded by the number of denominations that we have. I'm like, yeah, I'm kind of with you. Like, it doesn't quite seem to match what Jesus prays for in John 17. Now, I'm not passing judgment on any sort of group that decided to split from another group. I, you know, I don't, I'm not tracing any, I don't have any specific thing in mind. I'm just stepping back and going, this seems a little different than what I read in John 17. And so let's, let's ask ourselves about that and challenge ourselves on that and fight for and commit to and guard at least our unity. Okay, so there's this major difference between contractual relationships and covenantal relationships. And what we're all trying to figure out right here is if we want a covenant in relationship with one another and with this local body, King's Cross. And then a contractual relationship, my needs are more important than the relationship. And so if my needs aren't being met, I break the contract and I go find another relationship. So if I have a contractual relationship with Amazon. That one's pretty good. But if, but, if, but if I can get that cheaper at Walmart, then I break the contract that I have with Amazon and I go get it at Walmart. In the covenantal relationship, the relationship is more important than my needs. The unity in the relationship is more important than my needs. You place the relationship above that. So covenantal relationships, marriage, the one that we understand really instinctually is a parent and a child, is in an is in inherent, like, blood covenantal relationship. And we feel the violence of that, like when a baby is left at a fire station. Like, we, we just, like, we get it. Like, everyone's like, that. there's a violation of a covenantal relationship that's happened there. So what we're inviting here is a covenantal, that's what membership really is. And so that means, man, we got to fight for our unity in the midst of that and be willing to lay down um, minor 
minor, I don't want to, minor grievances, minor hurts, minor slights. We've got to aim for forgiveness. We have to be honest with one another. This is all part of the process of uh, fighting for our unity, guarding for our unity. Um, and this happens, and this is possible. Unity is possible. Jesus both calls us and commands us to it and empowers us to do it. Like This is possible in Jesus because what we are, like, we're unifying around him. And so no matter what our differences are, and there are so many differences, even just in this room right here, an, an unbelievable amount of differences, but the person that we are unifying around is so much stronger than any of those. Um, and if he is central in our lives and in our identity, then any differences just become a beautiful testimony to who this community is. Bonhoeffer, uh, this is in Life Together, right, Caleb? This quote. So in his great book, so Bonhoeffer who resisted the Nazis, and I mean, man, he lived a a beautifully kind of explosive life in the sense of it just was, he, he uh, was, man, killed by firing squad just days before World War II ended at, at 39. He was like 39 years old, right? So much wisdom contained in, in his life and heart. And here's what he writes, kind of summing all of this up. So notice how the community and the unity is centered on Jesus. So he says, I have community with others and I shall continue to have it only through Jesus Christ. The more genuine and the deeper our community becomes, the more will everything else between us recede. The more clearly and purely will Jesus Christ and his work become the one and only thing that is vital between us. We have one another only through Christ, but through Christ we do have one another wholly and for all eternity. Pause there. And that sounds like belonging to one another, doesn't it? Empowered by the fact that we're, we're doing that in and through Jesus Christ. Continue. That dismisses once and for all every clamorous desire for something more. One who wants more than what Christ has established does not want Christian brotherhood. He is looking for some extraordinary social experience which has not found elsewhere, which he has not found elsewhere. He is bringing muddled and impure desires into Christian brotherhood. Christian brotherhood is not an ideal which we must realize. It is rather a reality created by God in Christ in which we may participate. So part of what Bonhoeffer is attacking here, and I've seen this play out in small groups and in churches, is that people come into the community and they want, the, they want sort of the community. And that actually becomes the God that they seek after. And, th and then you will always be disappointed. The community is a byproduct of the fact that we're all chasing Jesus. So we can't make the community the God we chase after. Jesus has to be the God we chase after. And do you know what happens? The beloved community forms and is unlike anything else. It allows us to deal with our differences, allows us to put down our hurts, allows us to sacrifice for one another because it's all about the fact that we are doing this in and through Jesus Christ and the community becomes a byproduct. It's like a healthy marriage. You don't get a healthy marriage by pursuing a healthy marriage. You get a healthy marriage by pursuing Jesus, and the healthy marriage is the byproduct of that. So Jesus has to be the end, and everything else, it, it's, it's just the good stuff that comes in because you orient your life around the only person that you should orient our life around. So there's a similarity there, and Bonhoeffer draws that out really powerfully. 
Questions, comments, disagreements? Mark. I love that book, um, Life Together. Yes. And uh, can I just read one more quote from that? Yeah, got okay. it on the phone. Here we go. So, so Hold I on, Mark. I'm actually going to bring this to you. I got enough rope to do it. Right. Look at that. Here we go. So I've taught this book to the students quite a few times, and um, this has always been my favorite quote. Um, Certainly, serious Christians who are put into a community for the first time will often bring with them a very definite image of what Christian community life should be, and they will be anxious to realize it. But God's grace quickly frustrates all such dreams. A great disillusionment with others, with Christians in general, and if we are fortunate with ourselves, is bound to overwhelm us as surely as God desires to lead us to an understanding of Christian community. So what I see here is sort of a gift of disillusionment. Um, he writes elsewhere, unless we, if you haven't experienced disillusionment within your community, you haven't really begun to see Christian community. Because disillusionment just seems to be part of it. Well, certainly that matches with what I keep telling you, is that King's Cross will not commit to being a perfect church, right? Because we are not, and we will not be. We will never be. Uh, there will be disillusionment here. And the only commitment is not to be a perfect church. The only commitment is to recognize that that's true, to apologize for when we have, uh, and repent and confess when we have been a reason for that disappointment and disillusionment, and commit to trying to be a perfect church. That's one of the other ingredients. Let's keep striving after that. And we strive after that by actually pursuing Jesus more and more in the power of the Spirit. So thank you, Mark. Other questions? Yeah. Guard of unity. Yes. Yes. We are meant to be a family. Meant to be a family. Uh, we are meant to be a family. And so why don't we treat each other like we would our family? I mean, we don't, I don't know about you. The way I grew up, I always taught my kids, you, you're going to make this up. You're going to figure out what's wrong and before you go to bed. Mm-hmm. You know, go to somebody and you as a member, if you're taking your vows, right? should be able to talk to that person, right? Yes. And they shouldn't take offense. But I noticed that a lot of times people take offense because they don't like criticism. Mm. That's me too. I'm bad at that. <laughs> but it's a family. I mean, why wouldn't you do things, you know? Well, I, I mean, yes, you're, you're outlining sort of the process of how to really accurately and beautifully outlining the process of how we deal with grievances with one another is to first go to that person as a brother, as a sister, and, and appeal to them. And, and there's even pathways for like, okay, if that doesn't work, what happens next? You know, because we are so committed to this. That Why don't people want to get along? I mean, if you're going to have a family, you've got to get along with your family. So why don't they want it? I don't get that. I'm sorry. I'm taking drugs. No. <laughs> yeah, just trust me. I love that. Yeah, yeah. I'm sensing disillusionment in you. <laughs> I'm still trying to figure out what disillusionment is. <laughs> 
Disappointment. That's a synonym for disillusion. Yeah, yeah. Disillusion. Well, you can get disappointed in your kids, but don't make you quit loving them. Mm. Yeah. You know. Well, and I think. Yeah. I do. I do love what you're saying because there's something about stepping back and just trying to look at the simplicity of it, right? That like sort of makes some other things just fall away. And go, man, we we do sometimes just overcomplicate it and kind of we just miss the mark in the midst of it. So thank you. Yeah, very simple. Yeah. Yeah. Other questions or comments? (laughs) 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 Okay. Anything else from anybody before we move on to number two? Okay, so number one is belong to one another. That's an expectation that we have. Number two, use the gifts that God has given you. Use the gifts that God has given you. Let me read these couple of passages here, Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12. This is about the Apostle Paul writing to different local churches. For just as each of you has one body, for just as each of us, sorry, for just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body. And each member belongs, how about, there it is, Bingo. If you had that on your bingo sheet, uh, you, you win and get more tacos. Uh, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us, which that word in the original uh, language there is also, uh, it's charisma, which in other places is translated as gifts. So that's where we kind of get this idea of gifts. So First Corinthians 12, there are different kinds of gifts, different kinds of charismas, but the same Spirit distributes them all. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. Let's pause there. A couple things. Um, it is so sad to me that very often the topic of spiritual gifts has divided Christians far more than they've unified us. And there's important conversations to have about the spiritual gifts. We're not diving into all of that tonight. But did you notice with me in 1 Corinthians 12? Different gifts, same spirit. Different kinds of service, same Lord. Different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God. Every gift, every spiritual gift, comes from the same God. Okay? Which means that, as their source is unity, the fact that they have dis, they have caused uh, disillusionment, <laughs> since they have caused discord and have caused disunity among us, that's a problem with us, not a problem with the gifts. Because they have one source. One source. So they're supposed to unify us, and too often they haven't, which is a problem. Um, here's one of the other things I want to point out with this. This is a little counterintuitive. But your spiritual gift, right? When we get gifts at Christmas, there are gifts. Like somebody chose to give them to us. Okay? So that's our typical frame from when we're kids on, our typical frame is that when you're given a gift, it's mine and I get to keep it because it was given to me. Okay, so let me shatter that glass when I'm talking about the spiritual gifts. Your spiritual gifts, they're not for you, they're for others. Because it, right? (laughs) Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. So there's an external focus to this gift that you have been given. Your spiritual gift, counterintuitively, is far more about the person next to you than it is about you. 
It's still your gift, but if you're not using it for the benefit of others and for the building up of the church, for the edification of the church, for the common good, then you're actually misusing it because it's for others. Okay. Now, uh, here's one of the other pieces. Everybody has a gift. First uh, Peter 4.10 uh, is the reference that I always go to because in that verse, there is a baked-in assumption that uh, everyone's got one of these. And, and, and further, the body metaphor from Paul in Romans 12 helps us because everybody's part of the body. And every part of the body has a different gift and function to serve. And so nobody is excluded. There is no Christian that does not have a spiritual gift. So it's not a question of if I have them. It's only a question of what gifts do I have and am I employing them in the right ways to serve and build up the body of Christ. Um, so there's a lot of different... Uh, so, so people, well, how do I know what spiritual gifts I have? Okay, simple framework. You write this down from Tim Keller. Three places to look. Okay, so first place you look to discover your spiritual gifts is look out. Look out, which first means look out at the needs of the community around you and get involved. Serve, help, figure out your spiritual gifts by by practicing and doing and trying different areas. So look out at the needs around you because that keeps you from from being self-centered with your gifts. Because right? what everybody wants to do is they want to start with number two, which is uh, look in. So look out, look in. You should look in. You should sort of pray and, and seek God's face and ask him how he's gifted you. Spiritual gift inventories are out there. I, I know of a couple good ones if you are interested. They're not bad to take. But don't start there because your gift is not about you. So look out. Say, say to Ashley, do you need help in children's ministry? I don't think I'm gifted in children's ministry, but I look out at the needs of the community around you and serve where there's a need, and in doing so, test out various spots where you might be gifted. So look out at the needs of the community, then look in and do some introspection, pray, seek the Lord's face, take spiritual gift inventories, and once you think you know what your spiritual gifts are, number three, look around. So look out, look in, and look around. And by look around, I mean go to your spouse and say, am I gifted in this? And then actually listen whether they tell you yes or no. Go to your best friend. Go to your home group. Go to us as pastors. Go to people that know you and say, I've looked out, I've looked in, and I think I might be gifted here. You look around at the community and you ask for affirmation or denial of those gifts. But that's an important part of what it means to sort of build a Christian community is that we know how we're gifted and we employ those gifts for the good and service of others. So look out, look around, uh, look out, look in, and look around. Um, Caleb, you're up. Questions as he comes? Okay, clear as mud. We're going to keep going with Serve like Jesus. Serve like Jesus. Obviously, there are ways that we're all gifted to do various things, but at times there's just things that need to be done that no one's particularly gifted at. And no one's been like, I'm gifted at cleaning toilets. That's probably not a, a gift right that they would own, but it's just things that need to be done, right? I've set up teardown team, you know, putting up flags and things like that. And no one's like, I'm really gifted at this. It's just like, actually, there's just things that are hard that need to be done, serving in the church. And so we're looking for us to take on that attitude of serving like Jesus. It's a great book. I just grabbed a thing from there. Uh, 
by Tom Rayner called I Am a Church Member. And he talks about these two mindsets that we can enter into membership with. And one is that we would enter into membership with a, a country club membership mindset. And, and in this mindset is that, like a, like a country club or other things you might be a member of, you pay your dues and you pay into the organization. And therefore, when you come, you expect things to be about you and to be served, right? So you might show up at the country club and have dinner. You expect special access and things in favors for you. But when you show up at a country club and you belong to that as a member, you're not expecting them to say, hey, we need you to go clean the floors over here in the hallway, right? You're like, what? what? Like, no, I'm a member here, right? I, I pay my dues, right? This, this is about me now enjoying the benefits of being a member. He says that, that's one mindset that we don't want to have, that the country club mindset. The other is the mindset of Jesus in membership. And the mindset that Jesus has, we see exemplified in Philippians 2, that we're called to take on the same attitude that Jesus had. Who, in your relationships with one another, again here, read this with Philippians chapter 2, 5, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used, hear that, to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. So if anyone had the right to make things about himself, if anyone had the right to take advantage of things for his own benefit, it would be God and Jesus. But instead, he lays that down and in humility gives his life for us. Or, or again, look at Mark chapter 10, verse 45. As Jesus is speaking to his disciples, he says, For even the Son of Man came not, came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for, them, for many. So he came with this attitude that I'm going to come to find ways to be of benefit to other people, not for me to receive that. So we want to take on that same mindset with us into membership and our belonging in the church. Now I know part of this has to do with the attitude we take will depend, will, will have an effect rather on the way that we're able to persevere and be healthy in our service. And we clearly do not want to take advantage of people. We don't want you to burn out in serving the church. And that really does happen in some places where they, you get asked to do way too many things and you're just exhausted. So if you get to that place, I don't want to blame it on your attitude. So please hear that. And if you're feeling that in serving in our church, we don't want that for you. We really want to be careful that we do not ask too much of you. However, on the flip side, I do want to recognize that sometimes, sometimes, hear me, burnout can come from our attitude get that? Because we start to have a grudge that I'm doing this thing, and then it weighs more heavy on us. And it's not a joy for us to be caring and serving the church. We, we feel like we're doing more than other people, so we start to get frustrated and look down, and it, it burns us out. Do you see that? So sometimes it's our attitude, and that's not a place for us to now say, anyone who's tired of serving, it's their fault. The wrong attitude, that is not at all what we want to say. It really can be too much of a burden on people. And we want you to always feel like you can communicate that to us. Simply want to recognize that our mindset at times does play a part. So we want to speak that here in our membership. We want you to take on this mindset of Jesus. Specifically as well, we want you to serve our community. 
This can be through personal community involvement. Um, say, Darren, he heads up our uh, um, planning commission. We have Chad, who's doing plenty of things here around town, and his role. So you have ways that you're involved in the community. But we also have specific teams, a part of the church, for instance, the thrift store team um, that's led by Nicole. So there's a church women's thrift store here in Lyons that many people come and use and then donates funds to the community in different projects. So we're trying to have a team that goes there at least once a month to serve at that store, help process clothing, and, and help people in their checking out. So that's a great way for us to be a part of a need in our community. So maybe joining that. Also in the future, we'd love to see, I don't have a great name for this, but a family development team. It's just recognizing there's a lot of people in Rice County who are struggling financially um, and, and families that are in poverty. And it's one thing for us, say, through Care Portal and other means to just give help financially or through gifts to a family. And it's a deeper step for us to say, hey, we want to come alongside you and build a relationship with you and have a team of people that want to support you to plan out your finances more and help you in some decision making, get some things in order to come alongside people so that our help is not going to be hurting them but really actually leading them to develop. So hopefully in the future we'll get to that place that's coming not quite quickly but we'll get here eventually. Secondly, I'd say serve not just our community but our church family. This can happen probably most obviously in our Sunday morning teams and to encourage you deeply if you're a member to be part of one of these teams. So we have Children's Ministry, that's led by Ashley Brandis. There's the Setup Teardown Team that is led by Morgan and Tyler Helms. Uh, Morgan is about to have a baby here in the next two weeks or so here, so they're stepping down from leading that team, and we have Brady and Chandler Couture who are stepping into that role. Uh, our Welcome Team, Ashley Tassone and Mary Hoover. We have our Connect Team with Eric and Risa Wenzel leading that. Uh, finance Team with Tony. I lead the Worship Team. Travis Tassone leading Tech, and Lauren and Kyler Pritchard lead our prayer teams. I don't think I forgot any in that list. Um, but these are our Sunday morning teams, and great, wonderful leaders that we are so deeply grateful for. They give up time and energy almost every week to be a part of that, and love their attitudes in this. So we always have need for new volunteers, so if you want to step into that, it would be amazing. We also have a meal team, um, and again, others to come, specifically the development team, so just be mindful of those places that you can step into and use those good things that you have or just maybe, again, that you need to step into. So we don't expect you to serve everywhere, but we would ask that you serve somewhere. Serve somewhere. Any questions before we move on? Got a lot to cover. We're going to keep moving pretty quick. All right, this next one, four, is asking you to give financially a lot. Yeah, give Give financially, and there are a number of ways to give, in time, in energy, but scripture also makes it clear that it is important to give financially. This stretches our heart. So I want to talk about everyone's favorite church term right now, tithing, right? This is everyone's favorite word in the church. Even if you've not been a part of the church, maybe you've heard that before. Tithing is just a word that means one-tenth, or ten percent. Um, that we get from Scripture. And the concept comes from, here on your, your guide there, Leviticus 27, verse 30, says a tithe or a tenth of everything from the land. You should tithe this. Whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees belongs to the Lord, it is holy to the Lord. Or again, in Numbers 18, 21, when we ground this where we see this in Scripture, I give to the Levites 
all the tithes in Israel as their inheritance in return for the work they do while serving at the tent of meeting. So as the Israelites entered into the land of Israel, God divided up the land among all the tribes. There's 12 tribes. He gave land to all of them, except for one tribe. He, He didn't give any land to the Levites, who were supposed to serve as priests. Well, in this day, that's extremely difficult, because how do you support yourself? How do you make money? You're you're farming. You have um, flocks and uh, goats, and you have cattle. That's how you're able to make money. So God is not giving the Levites any land. He's not giving them any way to support themselves. So they have to depend on God for their, their food, for their money. Where does this come from? This command, God's giving to all the Israelites, saying, you need to give a tenth. You from the tribe of Judah and Reuben and Manasseh, all these other tribes, you need to give a tenth of everything that your land produces in order to support the Levites. Does that make sense? So it wasn't a kind of a tax, not to support the king, but to support the temple and the work at the temple, where the Levites would be leading the music, they would be leading the sacrifices, they would be taking care of the temple grounds. They would even be involved in teaching out in the villages like we see in Ezra. So they had all these roles to maintain the spiritual life of Israel. But to maintain the Levites, there's this like 10% tax of a tenth of everything the land would produce that was given to them. Is that clear? That's how the Old Testament lays this down. How does this affect us as a church? Do we see this? Repeated in the New Testament. We're going to lay the grounds for this. So we don't always talk about the history of the tithe, but where does this come from? Interestingly, the concept of tithing is not repeated in the New Testament as a command. So I can't take you anywhere in Paul's writings or John's and say, hey, here's this command where it says you must give a tenth of your money or finances. We don't have that command. Rather, giving generously and joyfully is the standard. For instance, we see in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And so notice it says that what you've decided to give, he's not saying you have to give 10%, but what you've decided in your heart, and to do that cheerfully. However, even this, I just want to recognize there's a specific context behind this. The, the Christians... In Jerusalem, in Judea, we're going through a famine and a very difficult time in the early church. So Paul's writing to the other churches in Corinth and throughout Greece that had more money, had more land, rather like more uh, produce and things like that, to give so they could take a gift to support their brothers and sisters in Jesus in Jerusalem, right? That they've never even met before. So this is kind of a, a giving almost to support other Christians elsewhere. That's why it's saying give generously whatever the Lord lays on your heart. So I say that because even our giving to the local church doesn't exactly mirror this context. Does this make sense? So I want to take us to one more place. Where, where can we see in Scripture maybe some guideline or call to give to the local church? I think one of the clearest, there may be others, but it's from 1 Timothy 5, 17 through 18. Hang with me here. The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. For scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. 
So Paul is giving instructions to local churches through Timothy. Um, and there's this admonition for there to be honor given to the elders in the form of financial support. So this is not a self-serving moment for Paul and I to have a raise, right? That's not while we're bringing this up. We're just saying that clearly there's some organization and there's some structure, even here in the early church, and Paul's writing the local churches, for them to support people, namely these elders who are preaching and teaching. And it seems to be financial because he says the worker deserves his wages. I think quoting that passage is clearly referring to honor in the form of financial um, giving. Does that make sense? So he's clearly laying some guideline for people to be supported financially. How are they doing that? Clearly it's through the giving of that local church that Timothy is supposed to be guiding in these ways. So, how's this come to us today? Again, thank you for staying with us. This is a long layout through the Old Testament and New Testament, but we don't have any explicit amount mentioned, again, in the New Testament, but a tithe, a tenth, because of its connection to the priests and the Levites in the Old Testament, and because of its historical use through the church, we believe is a good guideline for us in our giving. And so I want to be clear about this. We're saying this is our recommendation to our members that you would think about giving 10% of your income. This is not required to be a member. So we're not saying if you don't give 10%, you can't be a member. Please hear that. That is not what we're saying. Instead, it's our recommendation. We think this is the most biblically faithful way to give, but there's no clear command. So our recommendation is to give 10%. However, if you've never given before to the church, it might be a little rough to start at 10%. That might rock your finances a little bit. So that might be something to work towards, but not a place to begin. Interestingly, I would also say 10% isn't necessarily a place to stop either. Because there's no say, hey, just 10%, we're supposed to give generously and joyously, right? We see that again. So it's like, Lord, what are you leading me in this season of my life to give to your body and to give to this church family? We used this quote from C.S. Lewis before, but I think it's worth mentioning again. He says, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. Isn't that a weird line? Um, I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts luxuries, amusements, etc., is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. If our charities do not pinch up at all or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditure excludes them. And that hurts a little bit, right? But it actually calls our hearts out of the temptation of wealth and us leaning and trusting on that. Whereas Tim Keller says, Jesus didn't tithe his blood. He, he gave all of himself for us. He did not hold back. He calls us to have the same attitude towards one another. What is he calling us to give? Because we're asking members to give something, again, not having a clear rule or requirement around that, a recommendation of 10%, but not a requirement, we do recognize there's a deep need for accountability for us in the church. How is this money being spent? 
it's very important that we are open and honest about our finances in the church. So one way this is going to happen is through our finance team. Right now that's led by Tony Hoover and other people who are part of that finance team. That They are seeing the, the money that we take in, Tony sees, and also where we are spending right now. And also they're seeing our budget that we've put together for this year. Once we have members together at our member meetings, one of the core responsibilities we're asking of you as members is to confirm our church budget. So that you'll see exactly where we're spending money and where we plan to do that. And we're asking for you to confirm that, saying, yes, this is a good use of our church funds as we're all giving into this. We want your input. So as we're trying to create that in the best way we can, we're going to ask for members to confirm that. Again, there's a transparency here that's really important. And so we, we don't want to ever live or operate as a church in a way where we feel like we have something to hide. So even right now, if you're wanting to see more about our finances or our budget, we are happy to share that because we don't want to hide anything. We have no desire to do that. We want to be transparent, and we'll continue to do that in our member meetings. That accountability is important. Any questions about that? Before I turn it back to Paul, we're going to move through these last two pretty quick. Yeah, Mark. Just one observation. I hadn't really noticed this before. Verse 1821, give to the Levites all the tithes. Mm. So when I first read it, I wonder, well, there's constant admonition throughout the Old Testament to give to the widow mm. and the orphan and the foreigner among us. So if 10% is going just to the Levites, yeah. then how on earth are we supporting the widows, the orphans, and the foreigners? They must have been giving more than 10%. Absolutely. This is where you see this call to give the first fruits of your field. And even the first uh, born of the flock will be given to the Levites as well. And but yet, as they're harvesting, they're also told to, to leave some of what they're gleaning behind. And they're not counting that as the 10% for the Levites. They're actually counting that for the foreigner. And so it's like above and beyond what they're giving to support the temple and the Levites. Absolutely. God's saying, I will abundantly provide for you. Yes. Any other thoughts there? Let Paul jump back up here. Yeah, I think on that, um, just a couple of my thoughts. Um, boy, that's a way that churches can go wrong, finances, isn't it? And where pastors specifically can go wrong. You don't have to look hard or far to see uh, pastoral abuses. So we have, we talked uh, first week when I was here about checks and balances. So that's partly how we've kind of set up our leadership structure uh, with various powers uh, situated to the staff, to the elders, to the congregation, but even in, in other ways we think about checks and balances and try to have good policies and processes in place to prevent um, financial abuse uh, in a way that would be just deeply, deeply hurtful uh, to anyone that has trusted us with their finances. So just a couple of ways in the midst of that. Um, we've got some specific financial policies that we're continually uh, reviewing for best practices, uh, for check writing and, uh, and you know, kind of receipts and reimbursements and all of that. Uh, but another piece of that, too, is that Caleb and I, uh, we don't see specifics on how much anybody gives. Um, so obviously somebody has to do that because we want to give you guys uh, your, your tax returns at the end of the year. Uh, but that power doesn't rest with us as the pastoral staff. Uh, that, that'd be a little hard, right? I mean, that just isn't good for anyone. Um, so that's one of the, the, the sort of policies and procedures we try to live into there. Uh, just, and just want to, like, acknowledge, right? Like, this is, the church has not always gotten this right. And a lot of times it's gotten it wrong. And, and I think you can trace back even to the Old Testament, the Levites. 
didn't get this right all the time, I'm sure. And there's, uh, there's just, money has this funny way of wrapping its cords around our heart. And none of us are immune to that. Uh, and so we want to be really diligent in this process. It's also why um, we will talk about this, maybe more than other local churches do, because our genuine heart in this is it's what we want for you, not what we want from you. It's what we want for you, not from you, because just as uh, money can wrap the cords around the heart of pastoral leaders and church leaders so that then they abuse the finances of their church, that can happen to any single one of us. And the only way to shatter, the only solid real way to shatter the cords that money can wrap around our hearts is to give it away. And we think, as Caleb just so beautifully laid out, that giving to the local church is, is a... Is a primary place to do that because of the centrality of this institution even for all its blemishes and, and, uh, and disappointments over the years, the centrality of this institution to God's plan in the world uh, so there should be a, a primary place of giving for us and, and that will help us uh, to loosen the cords that money can have around our hearts so that we will talk about this, we will discuss this ultimately because we want you to be fully in the loop on it and it's what we want for you not from you uh, that's number four, give financially. Number five is share Christ. Share Christ. Colossians 4, 5, and 6. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. 1 Peter 3, 15 through 16. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Now notice a couple of things here with me. First of all, these are two different letters to local churches, to normal, everyday, just wonderful, beautiful followers of Jesus. This is not directed only to church leaders or to pastors. So we don't, so there's some things, right, and you maybe have heard this before, there's, we just talked about spiritual gifts. So there's some things that every Christian is called to do, and you don't get to, you don't get to say, I'm not gifted in that, so I don't have to do it. You, there's, just, there's just some things that is part of the, and there may be some who are especially gifted in these areas. Okay, so hospitality, something that every single Christian ought to do. Some people also have the spiritual gift of hospitality. You do not get to say, I don't have the spiritual gift of hospitality, therefore I don't have to be hospitable. Not allowed. <laughs> okay? And this one is hard, right? Because it's difficult, especially in an increasingly post-Christian culture, it is challenging to share Christ. We don't, and there are some people who have the gift of evangelism and sharing Christ, but that is also... Are you tracking with me? The call of every follower of Jesus that's well established in these passages and other passages. So, this is part of all of our journeys to share Christ well. The second thing I want you to notice is in both of these passages, speaking is involved. Uh, St. Francis of Assisi is wrongly attributed, he didn't say this, he's wrongly attributed as saying, preach the gospel always, if necessary, use words. You may have heard that. I understand the intent behind that. I do. Um, I get what's beautiful about that. Like, live your life in a way that shows Jesus. I'm not opposed to that. But John 1.1, 1, 1, 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's Jesus. There is a fundamental, you can't separate the message, who Jesus is and the message of Jesus from, from, the, word, from the Word. There is always a proclamation, and always spoken word, and always conversation. Sharing Christ does involve using words. Now, be thoughtful about when. It's not, it's not, you know, you may build a relationship with someone, allow them to see Jesus in your life, and choose the right spirit-led moment to begin using your words. But sharing Christ always does involve that at some point. It's part of it. It's baked so deep into the cake that when John opened his gospel to introduce us to Jesus, he says he is the capital W word. So this has been part of for thousands of years. And, and even back before that, God, out of his abundant goodness, decides to create. And how does he do it? With his word. He speaks creation into existence. So there is, our faith is a spoken faith. It's a word faith. And so that is part of, and I get that it's hard, it's so difficult, and so we love the St. Francis quote because it allows us to just sort of get away with not sharing Christ with conversation, with our words. But there is, um, and actually, I think you've got in First Peter a pretty good defense for like almost like this relational uh, um, evangelism, for this relational sharing of Christ. Because there's a, almost a reactive sharing that happens, right? Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have in Jesus. Okay, that's the implicit. You have the hope in Jesus. You're living your life in a way that it's like, what in the world? How do you do that? How do you navigate such difficulty and remain steadfast in the midst of it and so hopeful? Okay, that's the question that you get when you live your life oriented in that way. What does Peter say? Always be ready to give that answer. Always be ready. But you've got to give it. Because sharing Christ does involve uh, the words. does involve speaking. And they should be uh, accompanied and even preceded yeah, by a curiously loving life that prompts those around to wonder at Christ in us. Um, the seasoned with salt is where I was going. So when we do share, a lot of times um, Christians get really... Uh, well, one thing I think we forget about evangelism is it's not a zero-sum game. I, I actually do think we can push people farther away from Jesus. Okay, so if the person you meet is at a 2 and a 10, it doesn't work this way, but they're at a 2, and a 10 is when they meet Jesus. You know, it's like, and I understand the weight of this, but there's some Christians that think, well, we can't push them any farther than zero. Or we can't make, it's like... But this is why it's so important for our speech to be seasoned with salt, for it to be gracious. Because there's times where Christians are like, you know, you know what I mean, right? Like Christians, they just, they're preaching Jesus and it's like they're really kind of mean about it. <laughs> but that doesn't matter, right? Because I'm preaching Christ. It's like I actually think it does. Because gospel means good news. So we got to like, can't forget that. <laughs> there's good news and it needs to be there needs to be a loving kindness. Now, that doesn't, the gospel convicts, but I don't convict. The Holy Spirit convicts. That's not my job. 
Like the actually, and, and that the, the you know what leads to repentance? The loving kindness of God is what leads to repentance. So there is absolutely a need to be honest about sin and our rebellion and the brokenness of our lives and how much of that is our fault and like the ways we miss it. That's part of good evangelism and part of good sharing of Christ. Absolutely. But we can be like nice when we do that and kind when we do that and charitable when we do that. Um, and so many Christians are like, well, you know, it's not a zero-sum game. So there needs to be, like uh, Paul says, let our conversations always be full of grace, seasoned with salt. Um, the image of a witness, I think, is helpful here. You hear about witnessing, but let we need to step back and like, what is a witness? Let's remind ourselves of that. A witness is someone who testifies to what they have seen, the truthfulness of what they have seen. And um, there's this beautiful moment where we see this on display in John 1, where Jesus calls Philip to be his disciple. And so Philip has seen the goodness of Jesus in this exchange where he is called, and he he is compelled to go and find Nathaniel. And Nathaniel, um, Philip says, I, I have found the Messiah, the, the, uh, the Son of God. And he's from Nazareth. And Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip responds, come and see. Come and see. That is effective witness. I have seen, now you come and see. It's relational, it's invitational. It's challenging. Okay, you think that nothing good can come out of Nazareth. Come and see. Come and see. Uh, the woman later on in John's Gospel, John 4, right? Uh, come and see a man, the woman at the well, Samaritan woman at the well. Come and see a man who told me everything about my life. She goes and tells the whole town. She's literally knocking on doors. Come and see a man who told me everything about my life. This was a woman who was going to the well at noon, to at high noon, the sunniest, the hottest part of the day, to avoid everyone else. She has an experience with Jesus. It transforms her life. She leaves her bucket there, doesn't need it anymore, goes back and starts knocking on doors and says, come and see a man who has told me everything about my life. So there's a beautiful uh, invitation and, and a come and see sort of witnessing idea. That's what we do. Um, one last thing on this, and then I'll let Caleb close this down. Uh, High, high, high recommendation for a prayer book to go through if you're looking for one is The Valley of the Vision. It's a collection of Puritan prayers, uh, lots and lots of them, and the Puritans did some things really well, and they wrote some killer prayers. Um, And it took me several years to go through this book, and I just captured this prayer book and making them my own prayers, and I captured the ones that most captured me, so I wrote them, so I synthesized them all, so I have the book still, but I've got it digitally, sort of the best of the best for my heart at that moment. And some of them have just, like this one really frames my life. So this is from the Valley of the Vision. I, I was preparing and I went, I went and found this because I wanted to share it with you all. And hopefully you see this in me. This is what I'm aiming for in my whole life. May I hold forth and walk the way of Jesus with my temper as well as my tongue, with my life as well as my lips. And may I say to all who I meet, I am journeying to the Lord's given place. Come with me for your own good. So 
just do that together. I am journeying to the Lord's given place. Come with me for your own good. Questions about sharing Christ? Caleb Barris. Right, we have one last one here. Thanks for staying with us so well. Last that we have, if we're asking and expecting all of us together to submit to the elders. Submit to the elders. This comes from 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5. And again, maybe not the most popular phrase you've ever heard. Submit to the elders. We want to unpack that a little bit. Again, 1 Peter 5, 5. Notice how this includes all of us. It says, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. So this is not about some people submitting to the elders and other people not having to submit to anyone. We're all supposed to submit ourselves and humbly clothe ourselves with humility and engage one another in that attitude. So this is context means everyone. Elders, pastors, widows, younger people, children, we all clothe ourselves with humility. And this actually especially especially needs to be true of the leadership. See how Peter spells this out in verse 2 through 3. He says, Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over others entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. So there's a heart and a, and a care that's supposed to be extended to God's people, not thinking yourself better than others, but seeking to serve them. And so this is echoing, if you notice, uh, the same message that Peter himself heard from Jesus in Mark 10 that we referred to earlier. And service and humility should characterize everyone in the church, including and even, even foremost the elders. So this is command to submit to the elders does not leave room, hear me, does not leave room for abusive leadership. And this has all too often happened in the church, where people glorify themselves, people make things about themselves, they speak harshly to others, they abuse them spiritually in other ways. It's deeply unhelpful. So we hear a phrase like, submit to the elders, and it sounds like, allow unhealthy leadership. Do you know what I'm saying? People almost hear that connotation. But in what scripture is speaking, this is in the context of elders clothing themselves with humility and should allow no room for abusive or unhealthy leadership. Um, this doesn't mean there isn't any authority or organization in the church, though, right? Everyone being clothed in humility doesn't mean that everyone has the same authority. So notice what Peter writes in verse 5. This is the kind of where it all comes down to. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to the elders. And so we're asking, as King's Cross, all of us, we'd be submitted to the elders um, humbly, not blindly, with an eye to scripture to follow the directions set out by the elders of the church. And we don't have those yet. We do not have elders yet. Uh, but we eventually, people in this room, very likely we will be asking to serve in that way and confirming them together as a church. And then doing our best as they humbly serve us to, to humbly submit to their leadership. Any questions on that before we pray here? Okay, would it be... Would it be correct to, when you talk about submitting to the elders, to, to be to recognize or to that their their godly wisdom mm-hmm. and, and instruction more so than totalitarian 
Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's a great part to clarify a little bit what we mean by submit. It's not saying no matter what they say, you should follow. <laughs> there are some churches where it's been taken in that way. It's, it's not that. Peter doesn't mean that. Clearly there's a deeper authority and that these shepherds, these elders, are under shepherds of our true authority, right? And so insofar as their leadership and what they're speaking is in line with our true shepherd Jesus, we're asking let's follow in this way. And so that's going to be in line with what Jesus is doing, what he's speaking. And so as they're doing that, we, we want to follow that and respect and honor the leadership of the church. So especially as there might be some little decisions they make, they're like, I don't know if I agree with that. Now I want to kind of, you know, grumble about this. Actually, no, how do we honor and follow that, respecting the wisdom that God's given them? Any other thoughts on that? So again, here, here we're talking about this, what we're expecting and asking from you all in joining King's Cross as members. And we have one more week where we're going to look at how the church is organized. This is going to be an exciting night looking at bylaws, but kind of seriously, it is going to be a little interesting. So again, thanks for taking time to be with us tonight, and hopefully we get to see you all uh, next week. So thanks again for joining us.